Sunday morning, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. There are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and they'll get one into your hands. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. While we're turning there, those of you who are closest to me, and I'll see you at the back door, all these red spots, um, dermatologist, type A dermatologist, burning off free cancers. So, boys and girls, wear your sunscreen. Okay. But I don't want you to think I'm falling apart. I am falling apart, but I don't want you to think I'm falling apart. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you are, were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. And therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for these three verses that are going to outlive the heavens and the earth, going to outlive every circumstance in our life. They're going to outlive us in the natural sense of things. They're going to have the final say in every life, Lord, every Christian's life. And we thank you that we have a book like this to turn to, And allow you to take the things that are eternal. We're dominated by the temporal all week long. Just trying to take over our lives. We're glad to come and to study and to consider things that are forever, Lord. And things that are ours now. And we pray that you would teach us from these three verses about this important area of our Christian life related to the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, we move into a new major division within the book. And the Apostle Paul introduces, and the new division has to do with this thing called spiritual gifts. And the Apostle Paul introduces the subject by declaring in verse 1 his desire that both they and we would not be ignorant or ignoramuses or not knowing related to spiritual gifts. And that's important for us as Christians. You may sit here today, be a Christian, say, I know nothing about the Holy Spirit. I know nothing about spiritual gifts. And chapters 12 through 14 are written by the Spirit of God in order that we would not be not knowing concerning this very important dynamic of the Christian life. And so chapters 12 through 14, a cure for ignorance concerning spiritual gifts in our lives. There's the old saying that goes something like this. They say, well, what you don't know uh, can't hurt you. Well, there's a little bit of truth to that, but it's more a lie than it is a truth. What we don't know can hurt us in virtually every area in life. And it's important, obviously, with what Paul speaks here, that what not knowing or being ignorant related to spiritual gifts 
as something that is, uh, can hurt us. And I think that many, many Christians pay a very heavy price for ignorance concerning the Holy Spirit and concerning spiritual gifts because ignorance of the Bible on anything always makes us vulnerable to error. And to be ignorant related to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and to be ignorant uh, related to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit can lead us into a couple of dramatic errors that are present before us all of the time. And there is the error of excess in terms of the expression of spiritual gifts, which was what was happening in the church at Corinth. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there is the error of neglect that is concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, in uh, among Christians. In verse 2, Paul tells us further that the God that we serve is a communicating God. He's a speaking God. Uh, he's a revelatory God. And most of the Christians in the church at Corinth were Gentiles. They came out of a background of idolatry. Very few people in the ancient world were pure atheists. Uh, they, they worshipped things. They worshipped idols. They worshipped false gods. There is this incurable something within us. It's been put in us by God where we have a need as human beings to worship and be in relationship with someone who is greater than us, and that's our Creator. And a lot of people don't make their first uh, stop in terms of finding out who is this God necessarily by coming to the God of the Bible. We run into some dead ends before we realize that they are dead ends and then realize, ah, when we come to the Bible, we learn about Jesus, we learn about this God, what he's like, what he has to say, and we realize, ah, now I am home. But in the ancient world, there were very few pure atheists. They came to Christianity and to faith in Christ out of an idolatrous background. And the problem with these uh, idols that they used to worship, Paul tells them in verse 2, is that they were uh, they couldn't speak. Uh, it is verse 2, right. So the, they weren't able to communicate or to speak. He says that they were dumb idols, not in terms of their SAT scores, but in terms of their ability to speak or to communicate. They couldn't communicate anything to their worshipers. But the God of the Bible does speak to his children. He does communicate to us. And Christianity is intended to be very, very supernatural. It is a supernatural uh, religion, and the Christian life is to be a supernatural life. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul comforts us with the knowledge that the Holy Spirit, who is the originator of this supernatural uh, Christian life for every Christian, that the Holy Spirit is safe, that he can be trusted. Now, some Christians are very, very comfortable with God the Father, and they're very, very comfortable with Jesus, God the Son, but they're a little less comfortable with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he's viewed as like the odd uncle within the Godhead, and most often because the Holy Spirit I mean, God the Father is misrepresented all of the time in the world. 
and so often by those who claim to know him. Jesus is continually misrepresented in the world. But how the Holy Spirit is misrepresented, not only in the world, but misrepresented among Christians. I mean, that's in its own league. And so sometimes people get a little wary related to the Holy Spirit, a little antsy, a little uncomfortable, and uh, not quite feeling like he is someone I want to fully surrender to because I don't know if he's trustworthy. And Paul tells us here, that no one can say that Jesus is Lord and mean it except by the Holy Spirit. To call Jesus Lord and to mean that in my life, and that's a description of a Christian, not just to mouth the worst, but to really mean it, that is indicative of a work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. That's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. If you look at Jesus and you say, that's my Lord, that You say that because a miracle of the Holy Spirit has occurred within your life. And conversely, Paul tells us that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will ever call Jesus accursed. The Holy Spirit will never cause a person to curse Jesus. And not only that, but never cause anyone to diminish Jesus in any way. Uh, most people wouldn't, well, I shouldn't say that anymore. Uh, a lot of people won't curse Jesus, but who will then um, take and misrepresent him. They'll say that he is merely a man and he's not uh, divine. They'll say he's just a great teacher, just a great miracle worker, just a great prophet, but he isn't the Son of God and God the Son. That is to uh, speak derogatorily related to uh, Jesus. It is to speak in a way that diminishes him. And the Holy Spirit never has any part in anything that diminishes Jesus in any way. And in verse 3, to me, the Apostle Paul is telling the church at Corinth and telling us that the Holy Spirit is safe. He will always glorify God He can be trusted. There's no need to be afraid of the Holy Spirit, no need to be afraid of surrendering to him or to be afraid of his gifts. Now, because the Holy Spirit is so central to chapters 12 through 14, and we're going to be in these chapters for the next uh, month or so, the name of the Holy Spirit. He is named by name nine times in the first 11 verses of of chapter 12. So he's central to all of this. And I thought that it might be good this morning to do kind of a brief primer or kind of a introductory uh, study on the Holy Spirit so that as we head into these chapters, we know that we head into them with a common base of knowledge related to the Holy Spirit. Um, I asked Tom this week, Pastor Tom, I said, when's the last time we did a series, I did a series on the Holy Spirit here? And he said, well, it was back, you know, four years ago, 2010. And then we had done it previously, a series in 2006. So every four years we kind of do this. It's kind of the Olympics, the whole influence, and the Winter Olympics. And so it's been a little while. So for some of you, this is going to be something that you're very familiar with. But others of you, if you're here less than four years, may be something that's relatively new to you altogether. And I want to look this morning briefly at the following subjects. Number one, 
that the Holy Spirit is a person. And why is that important to know? Why does the Bible make such a big deal out of that? Number two, the Holy Spirit alone can provide us with the how of this Christian life. Number three, the work of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life will always look like Jesus. Again, he can be trusted. And number four, how to personally receive the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, to live a life like Jesus. So we begin with the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person and why that's important. I'd like to put up on the screen John chapter 14, a uh, passage in there where Jesus speaks concerning the Holy Spirit. If you read along, uh, I'll read it. You read along with me. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, you make note of that because there's very significant that he begins with that line in speaking of the Holy Spirit. He said, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he, speaking of the Spirit, may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. You notice the names or the titles that Jesus ascribes to the Holy Spirit, specifically in verses 16 and 17 there. He calls the Holy Spirit the helper in verse 16. He calls the Holy Spirit, gives him the title of the Spirit of Truth in verse 17. And notice too, all the way through in verses 16 and 17 alone, the repetition of the personal pronouns that Jesus uses in referring to the Holy Spirit. He refers to him as he, him, 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 he. Always in the Bible, when the Holy Spirit is referred to, he is referred to either by name or by title or by personal pronoun. He is never, ever referred to as it or as an it. And the reason he's always referred to by name or title or personal pronoun and not by the term it is that he is not an impersonal force. He is a person. He is the third person of the Godhead. And all of the way, just as much as the Father is a person, just as much as Jesus is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person. And all the way through the Bible, we're told things concerning the Holy Spirit that can only be true of a person. Sometimes in this culture, we generally, we think of a person or we think of personhood almost exclusively physically. We think of it in terms of, well, they have hands, they have feet, uh, 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 they're able uh, to walk, they have ears, they have eyes, they have arms, they have legs, and by virtue of that, they are a person. But there are many other marks of personality that are not physical. And some of the marks of the personality of the Holy Spirit that are spoken of in the Bible are as follows. Number one, he has... He has knowledge, we're told, and he is able to impart knowledge. So he has intelligence, an impersonal power source. 
uh, doesn't need to have intelligence. The Holy Spirit has intelligence. He has a will, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. So he has power and he gives power to Christians. But he also has a mind and he also has a will and he never gives that power independent of his will. Romans chapter 8 tells us that he has a mind, that a mind is attributed to the Holy Spirit. He thinks love is attributed to the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 15. He loves us and, and forces don't love people. He searches and he reveals, we're told in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. He prays, we're told in Romans uh, chapter 8. He communicates, we're told in Revelation chapter 2. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is speaking to the churches. He communicates, he teaches us. John chapter 14 as well. Jesus said that he will teach you all things. He also leads and he guides, Romans chapter 8. He can be lied to, Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. You don't lie to an impersonal force. You lie to a person. The Bible also says that the Holy Spirit can be grieved, Roman, uh, or Ephesians chapter 4. That means he has feelings. He can be hurt. He can be grieved by People's actions, impersonal forces are not grieved. People are grieved. And all of these are things are unique to a person. Sometimes the Holy Spirit gets relegated in people's minds, Christians' minds, as just this kind of power source out there. He's this um, uh, electric plug, spiritually speaking, that every time you need a little more juice, you go over and you plug in, and all he is is just kind of a, a recharge station. But he's much more uh, than that. And why is all of this important? Because when I realize that he's a person, that there's a person behind this power, uh, he gives the power, but there's a will behind it. There's love behind it. There's a mind that's behind uh, all of these things. Then the focus of my spiritual life and my ministry go, uh, moves from my will to his will. I realize, yes, he has power to give, but he gives it to accomplish his purposes for my life. And so... Surrender to the purposes and the plans of the Holy Spirit in every situation becomes a dominant part of my life. It isn't just going and saying, God, here's what I want to do. Give me the power by your Holy Spirit. I recognize that the Holy Spirit's in charge. I recognize that he's divine. He's God. And so I say, uh, Lord, I surrender to your Holy Spirit right now. And I ask that you lead me and direct me and empower me by your Holy Spirit. And there's that realization that he's the source of far more than just power uh, related to the Christian life. Now, it also moves my thinking away from 
uh, when I understand that he's a person away from thinking solely in terms of how much of the Holy Spirit do I have? And that's a common kind of thought. How much of him do I have to stopping and saying, wait a second, this ought to be a role reversal here. And the real question is, is how much of me does the Holy Spirit have? And I realize there's a surrender dynamic to the Christian life related to the Holy Spirit. Now, all of this brings us to the second truth concerning the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit provides us with the how to live the what of God's Word. It's no accident, as I mentioned, if we can put the John passage back up on the screen, it's no accident that Jesus exhorts us in that John chapter 14 and verse 15 and says, "'If you love me, keep my commandments.'" And then he proceeds to go immediately in to speak of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of a Christian. There's lots of people, even Christians, they have the impression of Christianity that God has revealed his will uh, in the Bible, and then now it's up to us to roll up our sleeves and now obey the Bible, obey all of those commandments and those encouragements, in our own strength. But if we fail to understand that without teaching that the how of God's Holy Spirit stands behind the what of God's Word, then we have the potential of becoming very condemned and very frustrated Christians. We can be a Christian who has very good intentions for living a good life and living a godly life, living the kind of life that we read about in the Bible, but then without the strength to live it in and of myself. And if I do not not understand that behind every command in God's Word, that what of His Word is the how of the Holy Spirit, the ability to obey every commandment, then I'm just going to end up being doomed as a Christian to Romans chapter 7. And Romans chapter 7, Christianity, is a terrible place to be. In Romans chapter 7, you might remember, you've got the frustrated cry of the Christian trying to live the Christian life in the strength of his own flesh. And and his frustration is expressed there in verse 19. He says, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. I know none of you know anything about that, but it's in the Bible, so I'm going to preach it. You've never felt that before. We know all about that feeling. Here's a Christian. For the good that I want to do, I don't do it. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And every Christian knows something about that. And I think I'm convinced that most Christians will spend some part of their Christian life, hopefully only a day or a week in Romans chapter 7, but it is a very frustrating place to be. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. The evil that I don't want to do, that I find myself practicing. And the the source of his frustration was 
how to perform what is good. That's the word. He had the what. He knew what he was supposed to do. But how in the world can I obey these commandments? How can I live the life that is described in the pages of this book? He, in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. I want to live this life, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And then finally realizing that he cannot live this Christian life in his own strength, he cries out for a help that is beyond himself as the chapter closes. And verse 24, and he said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. And he then goes on to speak of the who that would deliver him from a Romans chapter 7 Christianity of knowing what I ought to be but without the ability to live that life. And you move then, he moves then into Romans chapter 8, a chapter that's filled with instruction on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Behind the what of God's Word and behind every command and encouragement of God's Word is the how of His Holy Spirit. He gives us the commandments unapologetically, but then supplies us with the power to obey them through His Holy Spirit. And without knowing that as a Christian, then the Bible can become a complete frustration It looks like this impossible standard that God has given us to live up to. And instead of being able to live up to it, the beauty of the life that's described in there, the things that I want to live, the things that I want to do, the things that I don't want to do in order to live this, it just seems like the Bible is so far away that it mocks me and my desire to explore or experience the life that is found there. I love the observation that Christianity is not me attempting to imitate Jesus and the power of my flesh, but rather it is Christianity is the impartation of the Holy Spirit. The Christ-likeness does not occur through imitation, but through impartation. And let me illustrate it this way. I, I happen to, and I'm not alone in this, but I happen to really, really love the electric guitar. I don't play it at all. But I love to listen to a master who feels the instrument. It's an extension of him. And it, and it, and it is a means of express, they play it and you realize this person is expressing the core of their being through that instrument, especially in rock and especially in blues for me. That's, that, I just love the instrument that way and, and what it says. A number of years ago, I was watching television. You'll forgive me. And it came on the PBS station. And they had listed in the menu there a concert at Albert Hall 
Well, I've been to England and London a few times, and I knew where Albert Hall was. I'd walked past it and driven past it more than once and never really had the time to go in and look inside. There was no performance while we were there to go in and see. And so I was kind of curious. I've never seen the inside of Albert Hall, and so let's tune into uh, this and take, take a look at it. And so it was a concert by a blues guitarist by the name of Joe uh, Bonamassa. And, and he st- comes on and he begins the concert, and I happened to catch it right at the beginning of the concert that he was uh, playing, and he opened his show with a song entitled Stop, which was, you know, a classic blues kind of thing on you know, love gone sideways and all of that. And he just starts to go into this guitar solo thing that was just absolutely outrageous. I was just singing inside, watching him play and all. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it? It's every junior high boy's dream, and there's still a junior high boy inside of me. So wouldn't it be nice to be able to play a guitar like that and make it sing like that and do all of that, you know? And, And once again... Hit with that impression again. Have that kind of skill and that kind of freedom. Now, I took guitar lessons when I was a kid. Uh, it was probably fifth or sixth grade. And I don't know how long we, I, I took it. It wasn't very long before I realized I have zero aptitude for the guitar. You know, when the worship leader starts us to clap, you know, they'll start clapping on a song. I always get on the wrong the wrong one. And then i got to get on the right one. But I can't just move over to the right one right away. I'm like... And then I get it. I get it just like that. Motown would have never happened if it was dependent upon me. I don't have any rhythm or any bone of my body with a sense of timing or anything like that. Well, during that song, they panned the audience. And up in the balcony, <clears throat> there I was in the form of four strangers And they had come to the Joe Bonamassa concert, and I didn't even know he existed prior to seeing this. And they had come with fluorescent-colored inflatable guitars. And the whole time that he was playing up on the stage, they were up there playing these inflatable guitars along with Joe up in the balcony. Now, they knew what I knew, and that they could never, ever be able to play the guitar like Joe, no matter how much we might practice or try to imitate him. And they knew that the only way that we could ever play the guitar like that would be if there was some miraculous way by which Joe could come inside of us and then play the guitar through us. That it would never happen through imitation, but only through impartation. And the same thing is true related to the Christian life. I want to live a life like Jesus infinitely more than I ever want to play electric guitar like Joe. And living a life like Jesus is infinitely harder than learning to play the guitar even for someone as accomplished as he is. And the only way that living this Christian life can occur is if the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and then lives the life of Jesus through us. And that is Christianity. The Spirit of God, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives 
to now live the life of Christ through us. Now, third, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives will always look like Jesus, the Jesus that we read of in the Gospels. Now, when I was a boy, I was raised in a church that had tremendous respect for God the Father and tremendous respect for God the Son and tremendous reverence for the Word of God. But concerning the Holy Spirit, eh, people weren't quite as comfortable related to him. And there was a family friend in that church, a woman who was a friend of my mother's, and she would come over, and she's a wonderful Christian woman. But sometimes she would take me aside, and she would speak to me about the Holy Spirit and different gifts of the Holy Spirit, and she would kind of warn me uh, about different kinds of things that other Christians did, you know, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And those things kind of stuck with me. Those kind of things do with a kid. And when I committed my life to the Lord later in life, I needed to be reassured that the Holy Spirit was safe, that he wouldn't take and get a hold of me and do in my life and make me do things like she had told me that other people had done uh, under the, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord really used John chapter 14, verse 16, and Romans chapter 8, verse 9, to set my heart at ease related to the Holy Spirit, to let me know that I could trust the Holy Spirit in the same way that I trusted Jesus. Uh, Just as completely, just as thoroughly. He was just as trustworthy, just as much a gentleman, uh, just as wise, just as caring, just as appropriate in any situation that he would be in as Jesus was and as I could see so clearly in the Gospels. Jesus called, again in John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus called the Holy Spirit a helper. That's one of the titles of the Holy Spirit. And it, it, helper comes from the Greek word parakletos, which means one who comes alongside to help. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us to help us in our Christian life. You're never alone as a Christian. I am never alone as a Christian. The Holy Spirit is always with us as Christians. Sometimes you've got the proverbial picture in in our minds of this, you know, great hulking man. Picture it, some, you know, incredible hulk of a guy, and he's got the hand of a little old woman and helping her to cross some busy city street. And in, in a mental picture like that, it's just a small sense of what the Holy Spirit is doing every day in our walk with the Lord and in our Christian lives. We are never, ever alone. But I want you to notice that Jesus not only calls him helper in verse 16 of John 14, but calls him another helper. And the word that he uses for another is a very interesting one. In the Greek language, it is alon, and it means another of the same kind. There's a different Greek word that means another of a different kind. But this one means another of the very same kind. And when Jesus declares to the disciples and to us that he's going to give them another helper, he's telling them that he's going to send a helper just like the first one. And who was the first helper? Jesus was the first helper. In other words, he was going to... Uh, the helper that he was going to send would be just like Jesus. 
just like Jesus, in those three and a half years of his public ministry, anything that the disciples ran into, any problem that they ran into, demoniacs, uh, people needing to be raised from the dead, uh, no food, whatever it was, Jesus was infinitely capable of taking care of every single thing that they faced. And Jesus was saying to the disciples and to us, what Jesus, what I have been to you for three and a half years face to face, my Holy Spirit is now going to be that to you in your life. It also means that the Holy Spirit will never ask us to say anything or do anything that isn't consistent with Jesus and his character. You never have to, you know, flinch or hesitate even a single bit to say, I'm just going to surrender myself fully to the Holy Spirit and wonder what the result will be. He will always make us more like uh, Christ. Any legitimate work of the Holy Spirit will cause us to live and to speak more like Jesus. And once I realized that, I realized that the Holy Spirit was safe to surrender to and, and safe to say, now you be the full influence within my life. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it's probably my favorite uh, title for the Holy Spirit in all of the Bible, and there he is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Because that phrase right there made everything connect for me. He will never, ever manifest himself in a way that is inconsistent with the Jesus that we know in, in the Bible. Not in our own lives or in any church meeting or any situation. He's absolutely safe. Well, now finally, let's examine how to personally uh, receive the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit uh, into our lives in order to live this Christ-like uh, life. And that happens by being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if we could put Acts chapter 1, verse 8 up on the screen and let's read it. These are the words of Jesus once again. But you, he's talking to Christians, shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And... You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is with every Christian. He is alongside us. We've just spoken about that. The Bible also teaches that the Holy Spirit is in every Christian. That's how we become a Christian. We put our faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. That's how we're born again, by the Holy Spirit. So he is with us and he is in us. Jesus has just met with the disciples that he's speaking this to earlier in John chapter 20. He breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came into their lives. And so the Holy Spirit was with them, was in them. And now he starts to talk about a third experience with the Holy Spirit by talking about the Holy Spirit now coming upon them. A third relationship with the Holy Spirit described by this third preposition. Not just with, not just in, but upon. And this experience uh, 
that Jesus is describing there in verse 8, he has given a title to just three verses earlier in chapter 5 where he calls it the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice in this passage that this baptism with the Holy Spirit is the provision of power by the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power. I don't know if you need power in your Christian life. I think we all need power in our Christian life. The world that we live in, the neighborhoods that we live in, all the different things, we need power. Uh, Just knowing ourselves, we need power. So it is the provision of power by the Holy Spirit. The word that's used in that passage in the original language is the Greek word dunamis for power, and it means dynamic power. We get our English words dynamo, uh, dynamic, dynamite from that same Greek word. And so this baptism with the Holy Spirit is the provision of dynamic power that comes from the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice further that the power is given for a purpose. It's power to be witnesses to Jesus. He said, and you shall be witnesses to me. Now notice that means when he says that it's the power to be witnesses unto Jesus, that's more than witnessing for Jesus. Witnessing for Jesus is included, but when he says you shall be witnesses, this is something way beyond us just speaking or street witnessing or sharing our faith. It's where our whole life becomes a witness uh, to Christ, to Jesus. It's the power to live a life that looks like Christ, a holy life, a life of service. Notice further that it's the power to live a life like Jesus anywhere in the world, in any environment we are in the world. He refers to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. He speaks of it from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem kind of represents at home. The uttermost parts of the earth represents the other side of the world. So here is the power to live for Christ no matter how stinking or filthy or hard or dark or demonic or ungodly the environment is, that the Spirit of God will give us an ability to live like Christ in that environment. There's a funny thing. You go to pastor's conferences. You don't, but I do a lot. And sometimes, not everybody, but a good portion of people feel like the city that God has called them to be a pastor in is the hardest place in the whole world to plant a church and to pastor a church. Well, everybody can't be in the hardest place in the whole world, so there has to be actually a hardest place somewhere, but we tend to think in in those terms, and we've never really done a vote on those kind of issues to see who's in the the worst city or the hardest city. Why? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the city is. The Holy Spirit will give us the power to live a life like Christ in any environment, whether at home with one of the hardest spouses, and God may even know it to be true, ever in human history, Raising kids at a time in which they're at a place where it's pretty difficult to do that. They talk about how the declining birth rates in the Western world and they're lamenting it. 
people aren't having children, with people that are thinking twice about having children. They shouldn't have children. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all done so I can speak authoritatively on the issue. I like your children. <laughs> but people think they're going to bring a child into this world and not only am I going to have to fight them and their sin nature and all that to fashion them into you know, the image of Christ and all of this and be a part of that, but in doing so, I'm not only fighting with them, I've got to fight the whole world. I've got to fight everything about the entertainment in this culture. Everything about the games and the movies and the music and all of the different things. I gotta fight my government. I've gotta fight the federal government, the state government, and the local government to raise my child in the things of the Lord. And yet, whatever situation we're in, the Holy Spirit will give us the ability to live a life like Christ in that situation. And He's infinitely greater than any circumstance. Whatever neighborhood we live in, whatever apartment complex that we live in, no matter where we work, what school we go to, what nation of the world that we live in, this is the guaranteed power to be able to live this kind of life. And how in the world does a person experience this baptism with the Holy Spirit? I want you to notice that it's received. Jesus said that it's received, and received is a gift word, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, all right, give me 50, and then I'll do it. That'd be works, wouldn't it? So how would you get baptized in the Holy Spirit to have this dynamic in your life? Well, he told me to give him 50 push-ups, and then he gave it to me. That'd be works. There's no works in this. It's 100% a gift. I asked for it, and he gave, he gave it to me. And it's received, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, not by climbing the Himalayas or walking on your hands and knees over glass, you know, to the top of the stairs of some cathedral or something like that. It's received simply by asking for it. Jesus spoke in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 13, and he said, If you being evil, us as human parents in comparison to him, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and we know how to do that. He said, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask and do 50 push-ups or the religious equivalent of it, have an all-night tarrying meeting? How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask him. It's just there for the asking. It's that simple. That simple. And we receive it just by simply asking God for it. God never fails to answer that prayer because it's based upon Jesus' promise. Jesus taught in John chapter 7. He was in Jerusalem on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he stood before this crowd that numbers in the hundreds of thousands of people. And he cried out to them and he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. 
And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, torrents, an overflow of living water. And the Holy Spirit, by John, the apostle John writes as an explanation for this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. Jesus wants every one of us, each and every one of us as Christians, to have a Christianity and a relationship with the Holy Spirit that is such that there is a torrent or a river of the Holy Spirit pouring forth from our lives on a continual basis. That not only would we receive the Holy Spirit for our own good and our own edification and blessing, but that we would want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can impact for God the people in any environment that we find ourselves in. And that's what this Holy Spirit does. If there's a torrent of living water coming out of my innermost being, and that's the Holy Spirit, then any situation I find myself in, people are going to get that on them. They're going to realize we're in touch with something that's supernatural. It's, it's completely different. That The quality of life that that person is living is completely different from the quality of life of everybody else that I know. What's the... what? What's the source of this life that's coming out of you? And God wants people to be impacted in that kind of way. And if that, that torrent of living water coming out of your life doesn't characterize your life as a Christian, then you should ask him, Lord, would you give me, Jesus, as you promised in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, this dynamic of the Holy Spirit. I'm done with Romans chapter 7. I hate that kind of Christianity that I'm caught in here because of the neglect of the Holy Spirit. I want to head in to the life that I read about in you and the Gospels and all the way through the book of Acts, and he will always answer that prayer. And the Bible teaches that for every Christian... There's a baptism with the Holy Spirit. And just as the apostles were baptized on the day of Pentecost, but then they were refilled with the Holy Spirit over and over again in their ministries. You ever go into a situation where you sit and you talk with someone and the person is so needy, the problems are so big, you just can't believe it. And you sit and you talk and you pray and you pour into their life for an hour and a half and you get done and you just feel like you got done wrestling with a bear. I mean, you just gave it everything you had and you're tapped. You say, man, I, what am I going to do? I've got four more appointments like this today. The person can just stop. You don't have to find a telephone booth and go into it or anything. Anywhere you are, just stop and say, would you freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit? I want the next person that I meet not to run into a tapped out Damien Kyle, but I want him to meet a torrent of your life coming out of me. And the Holy Spirit will immediately refill us with the Holy Spirit so that that supernatural dynamic marks our lives. That's the Christianity that is in the Bible. You read the book of Acts. That didn't happen because of the talent of those apostles. The book of Acts is sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. Don't believe it. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. They're just ordinary people like us, very ordinary men. 
But they knew the secret that shouldn't be a secret. And they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. They remained filled with the Holy Spirit. And God changed the world through their lives. I refuse to believe that any Christian that's still wide awake, I'm not talking about this sermon. Every one of us ought to have deep within us, God made me to do something special. God made me to do something great. God made me to accomplish something great in his life. And then it's up to him to make much of our lives. But that should be there by the Holy Spirit. And it happens through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's a famous book called They Knew the Secret. Sometimes people look at this and they say, well, you get everything, you know, there's no baptism of the Spirit afterwards. You get... It all happens at the moment of conversion, and I said probably a lot of times it does. But it's interesting when you read about Spurgeon and you read about D.L. Moody and you read about um, Billy Graham, where they were walking in a certain dynamic in their life and ministry, and then one day because of the prayers of other people for their lives, for something to happen. Billy Graham was just teaching to average small crowds at the beginning of his ministry. And then he had a dynamic experience with the Holy Spirit that changed his life and the quality of his Christian service until now the stadiums couldn't contain it. D.L. Moody had the same experience. The apostles had the same experience. The Holy Spirit came in them in Acts chapter uh, tw- uh, John chapter 20. They're baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. A gap of time. It doesn't matter. All I'm saying is to remove obstacles from you to say, do I have this? And if I do, praise the Lord. If I don't have this, there's hope for my Christianity and my Christian life. We've been made to do great things for God. We've been made to be great things for God. That's inside of us. And it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural life that God has called us to, and we need supernatural power to live it. God the Father wants us to have the fullness of this Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is his idea. Acts chapter 1. Jesus wants us to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants us to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The whole Godhead is united in desiring us to have all of this in our lives so that we're not getting beat around by this dopey world that we live in. And we're not living under the circumstances, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, being thrown around like a rag doll. That's not who we are. That's not the army that we are. That's not the body that we're a part of. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit like never before in our lives. Christians in this country, like never before in our lives. And it's there just for the asking. Let's pray together now. I just want to, we're in a spirit of prayer. If you sit here today and you say, I have never known about any of this. I've heard the Holy Spirit. I've heard his name, but I didn't know any of these things. And I got this Christian life where I'm not on top of anything. I fail in the face of every test. And I'm sick of myself. I'm sick of it. I'm 
losing hope, thinking I'm crazy or some freak that this doesn't work for? And the answer is you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the interesting thing is I can't ask for that for you. You have to ask. Jesus said, again, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the whole, your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Just ask him right now, right where you're seated. And you don't have to have some fancy language or, uh, or eloquence or something like that. You can just say, God, whatever that man was talking about, I don't have. But I understand that you will give it to me, and I'm asking for it right now. And God will meet you right where you are and do that. Now, you just ask him right now where you're seated, and we're going to pray for you while you're asking him. Lord, we pray for each one that's reaching out to you for this fullness of the Christian life that's found in your spirit. We pray that you meet them, baptize them with your Holy Spirit. Give them that power, Lord, to live for you, whatever the circumstances or difficulties and wherever they are in this city and wherever they are in this world. We pray that you make the word of God explode to life to them because of the presence of your Holy Spirit in this new way. And we pray that everything would just open up and change for them instantaneously. We ask that you would confirm your word with accompanying signs and wonders in each person's life. And Father, for those of us who know all these things and we've walked with you for a long time, we just pray and ask that you would help us never to develop a deadly familiarity with these truths. We thank you for what you have made of our lives by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that there's a filling, refilling that's just a prayer away. We thank you that we get to live a life that we only could have dreamed of at one time in our life, and it's all because of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us not to fall asleep and help us not to be satisfied with some weak, anemic, pathetic Christianity in this time in human history that you have called us, Lord, to stand for you. And we pray these things and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.